How is your weekend going? Did you think I meant that? Did it, it didn't sound authentic, did it? I'm just opening the book. I had to say something. I'm just kidding. I love you guys. My name's Jason, uh, lead pastor here at Portico. We are in week two of Revelation. Last week, Pastor Nate Wagner started us out and really gave us a fantastic framework to start beginning to understand this book, which everyone has been terrified from, which is sad, because it has much for us. We're going to jump in to chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 6, so you can put your thumb there. Um, We have some Bibles in the pews, a big blue book. So around Easter, almost every year, you have these Discovery Channel, like, exposés come out, and it'll be something like, Jesus never actually admitted that he was God, and, you know, something to, like, unseat us from our faith, and and I get that. Um, But there's also polls that come out, and there was a Gallup poll that came out a few weeks ago, and it said something to the effect of, in the last 20 years, there's been a steep decline in membership in churches and synagogues and and, you know, it's, it's really on the decline. It's all dying. It's, it's, it's ending, right? That was the narrative. And it's true. In the, last 50, or in the last 20 years, those who identify themselves as having no religious affiliation whatsoever have increased from eight to close to almost double that. And church, people that would say, yeah, I belong to a church or a mosque or a synagogue has, has just really dived. So that's interesting to me. And I think it's true, especially in the American West and maybe even Europe as well. But the question I have is, what does that mean? How are we supposed to understand that? Because when we preached through Revelation in the last quarter of 2019, we went through 2 and 3, chapter 2 and 3, and it was all about the churches, all seven churches in Asia. And it was paradigmatic of every church that would ever touch the face of this earth, we're supposed to learn from it. And the constant refrain that Jesus kept telling to John is like, he who conquers, I will let him eat from the tree of life. He who conquers will wear the crown. He who conquers, I will give a white robe. It's winning. Are we winning? I mean, here's what I see. Um, pandemic. I see racism. I see a flag that never leaves half staff because there's always some sort of a a, a horrible, murderous event. Um, I see divided churches. I see divided people. Are we winning? I don't know. Are we winning? The reason this book doesn't make sense to us is because it has something we need, but something we don't perceive that we want. Here's what we want from it. I want information I want it to help me understand what my life is going to be like. I want some detailed picture of my future. doesn't have that for you. What you're going to see today is what you need. You're going to see a picture of glory so intense, so piercing, so present, that it's going to completely eclipse and overturn what you live for. And that just starts the victory. So, as we're coming to Revelation, push the noise out. Let God define the win for you. Let his glory, even as John said, as we're walking through worship, let that be 
what we're listening to, what we seek, and what we want. Because that's where it starts. So let me just, before I even read the text, I just want to read how we ended the last sermon series in December. This is finishing up to the churches. And Jesus says, um, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, this is chapter 322, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Constant refrain. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've been told to conquer. Where does that start? There's something very simple for you today in Revelation, which is ironic because it's a very strange road to get there. And it's going to feel disorienting, and it's going to feel bizarre. Hold tight. Right? The Lord has something for us today, and it's critical for understanding Revelation. So, Let's pray. We need it. Take a deep cleansing breath. Grab your Bible, right? And we're going to go. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you don't just give us letters. You don't just give us... You, you, you have superintended your word to give us so many different styles and genres that speak to our head, heart, and our soul, Lord, to lift us up. We are calling us to go. So today, we submit ourselves to your word and pray that you would open it up, that we might behold its treasure. And as Moses, your prophet, said, show us your glory. We humbly ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If you're joining us online, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, you can uh, open up the Bible as well. So let me read this text, and then I will we'll walk through it together, okay? And this is the Apostle John, and he's interacting here. So, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Did you get that? You got it? I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about it. So last week, there's something here that's so critical and so simple, but last week, Pastor Nate Wagner led us through an orientation sermon, and I'm going to review just a couple things out of it, because if we don't understand a few key things, Revelation becomes a jumbled mess of stories that means essentially everything or nothing. You won't learn from it. So the first thing is that Revelation is for you, 
This is not for some super apostle or for spiritual leaders to sit around and to determine when Jesus is going to come back or who the Antichrist is. Um, It's not secret. It's actually a revelation. It's for you. It's meant to bless you and to give you grace and to give you peace. So even if you're just a brand new Christian, like, whoa, what is that? It sounds like science fiction. It kind of is. Not that it's untrue, but it's a genre that is highly symbolic. So understand this. Revelation is for you. It's bringing blessing and peace. Now, it has a very specific genre that's very, very disorienting to us, and we're not comfortable with it because we don't have it. Now, back in the church's day, they had a, 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 a genre called apocryph- um, apocryphal literature, right? It's apostolic. Not Help me out. That's the wrong word. Nate, what is it? Apocalyptic. So good to have him here. Apocalyptic. I can't, for some reason, I can't say that word. Apocalyptic is a genre that they would write in. Now, during the, you know, after Nehemiah, they kind of started doing a lot of writing in that genre, so they are were, they were comfortable with it. They are familiar with it. You will see it in Ezekiel and Daniel some. But let me tell you a little bit about apocalyptic literature. It is highly symbolic. It is based on visions and dreams. It normally has creatures from the unseen realm that are mediating it. It's future-oriented, and it has one foot in this world and one foot in a world you've never heard of before, and it tries to force the two together. And so we're very unfamiliar. It really is the closest thing I can think of is maybe Lord of the Rings or The Pilgrim's Progress or maybe just straight-up science fiction. We don't understand or use this genre very much, so it feels disorienting to us. So, A, know that. And we'll be walking through how to read it as we read through the text so you can get a feel for it and you can understand it and you can learn from it on your own. Uh, so it's that. It's also a letter, so it's written to the church. It's not just a, some high manual or scroll that we're not supposed to. It's written to the churches. It's meant for us, and it's prophetic. That means that God is speaking to his people. God has something for you in it right now. It will change how you see the world, and it change how you live. It's highly prophetic in nature as well. So let's keep trucking through that, and we will use examples of how that interfaces with our text today. And lastly, this is so, so important. If you don't understand this part, you're never going to, again, don't read Revelation because it would be so hard to read. Revelation recounts the inter-advent period seven different times. That's all it's talking about. The time from when Jesus ascended to when he returns. That's called the inter-advent period. From when Jesus is resurrected and ascends to the right hand of the Father until he comes back and the dead are resurrected and he judges the living and the dead and establishes his kingdom in full consummation. That's what it does. It looks at the same block of time, seven different times from seven different perspectives. If you've ever read Revelation and you're like, why does it feel like the story, the story starts over again and again? Because it does. Why does Jesus come back like every other page? How come the stars are thrown down here and three pages later they're thrown down again? And then there's this and there's a lake of fire and there's another like, how do you make sense of that? It's not chronological. It's looking at the same period seven different ways, right? So it'd be a little bit like a football replay camera. You watch the play, big angle, and they're like, hey, you know, we're going to challenge that. We think the receiver stepped out of bounds. And they're like, they show one angle from the left side of the field, and you can't quite see his foot. Then they show it from the right side, and they show it from... Same thing that Revelation is doing. Same period of time, seven different aspects. Now, here's something that's 
uh, a characteristic of it. It's called progressive parallelism. It, it intensifies every time. It gets a little bit, like the energy gets higher each time. For instance, we just crossed one of the thresholds, and you probably didn't even feel it. It's like a very soft landing. Jesus is knocking. Hey, churches, you going to let me in? I'll eat with you. And, oh, by the way, I conquered. Jesus is put on the throne by God the Father, and I'm going to put you on the throne with me. That's the end of the world. That's the end of the advent, the new heavens and new earth. Very soft landing. By the time you get to Revelation, Jesus coming back is the new Jerusalem coming out of the sky, squishing everything else and setting up his kingdom in full victory. So it intensifies. Do we have that? Do you get it? I almost want to see if anybody has a question. Because if that's odd, if you're like, I don't get it, then all of Revelation's a mess. And this is not the first time we're going to talk about it. We're going to show you where the breaks are. So chapter 4, verse 1, is the second room in the museum, if you will. Or it's the second camera angle at the inter-advent period. So we're starting that today. Make sense? Good. Love it. All right. That's all I have. I don't know what else to say. Just kidding. Um, Oh, well, I will say this. There's a reason, I think, I was trying to think why, why God does this. You know, you know how little kids love to watch the same movie over and 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 over? Why do they do that? They love the story, and they want it to be real. Right? They have the imagination to handle that. You don't. God builds revelation so his kids can see that story over and over and over and over because we love it if we understand it, and it is real. He wants us to live as though it's real because it is. So I, I, think, it's, I think God's brilliant in this regard. Well, he is brilliant. He doesn't need me to say that. <laughs> Sorry, Lord. Sorry, Lord. I'm going to hear about that. So let's jump into the text. Uh, first, right off the bat, it, it says that there's a door standing open in heaven. Okay, so we'll talk about that in a minute. And he hears a voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, symbolic language. So we would pull back to verses chapter 1, verse 10, where John says, and then I heard a loud voice like a trumpet saying, okay, so he means you to understand this is Jesus. It's apocryphal, what is it again? Apocalyptic, sorry. It's apocalyptic genre. So he didn't just come out and say, this is Jesus. Oh, by the way, Jesus. No, a voice like a trumpet that I'd heard before. It's Jesus. Are you getting this? And he speaks to me. And what does Jesus say? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So uh, get the scene here. Jesus is showing him everything that needs, like all these deficiencies in the churches and all their strengths, and says, you need to get these people, write this down so they can know to conquer and trust me all the way through. And oh, by the way, I've conquered. I'm on the throne. I'm going to pull you up to my throne too because you're going to conquer. And then Jesus says, and come here. Let's check. Come on with me. Come on. I'm going to show you. So you see John come up to the throne room up into the heavens, and he basically looks at the throne and through it back down to earth. You need to see this. The throne room is the theological center of not just revelation, but all of life and all of history and all of everything. So that's part of what Jesus is doing, is he's putting John's eyes on what is most important, because Jesus knows that there's a lot of crazy stuff that's going to happen in history, and if John's not looking through the throne room, it won't make sense to him. So I will show you what must take place, and I'm going to pull you up to the throne room because everything in this book and in life proceeds from the throne of God. Everything. That's a, that's a huge, huge point here. 
Everything proceeds from the throne of God. Everything. There's some crazy things that are going to happen. So the text says that, that John is in the Spirit. Very key. That's prophetic language. It happens four times in Revelation, and it always is a position shift. We're looking this way now. Right? And literally, it means he's not on the island of Potmos anymore, off of Turkey. The Spirit of God has transported him, either through vision or some way, we don't know, to a place that Jesus wants him to see. So before we get out of this invitation to the actual throne room, there's something, there's something that you must understand personally. Right? This is where the prophecy comes in. God is moving all of history, always has been. God is moving all of history to a very specific, glorious end where his holiness, his justice, and his grace and mercy are set up and exalted for all eternity. He's taken everything right there. And that will be the foundation of the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, you with me? Now, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're in Christ Jesus through by faith, that means that every one of these forces that seems to be controlling your life right now, everything you fight with and struggle with, is actually under direct divine control. Every force that is in your life that seems to be pushing your life around is actually personally and directly being controlled by God so that your personal history will end up at his, at his desired glorious end, which is in this book. Do you feel that? you got you to feel that. If you're in Christ, your personal history ends up where God wants it. All of history's moving that one spot. That would have meant something to John because he was already exiled by himself on an island in the Mediterranean. Sounds great to me. Probably wasn't great for him. Okay? He's under house arrest and the church is getting crushed. So, that's the dangerous invitation that Jesus gives to John to pull him up. And then we see this glorious presentation of what is the throne room. We've got to understand this. So have you, um, in my day, we would have called it a brochure. Have you ever looked at a brochure of some place, like a, a vacation you wanted to go to, and then you got there and it was awful? You're like, this looks nothing like the brochure. Or have you ever looked at a website and you're like, oh, we're going to go there. And then you book it and you get there and you're like, what is this place? I remember going to a hotel once because it looked awesome. The pool actually looked awesome. We love pools. When we got there, it was drained. Okay? Remember that, baby? That was awesome. That is how life works. Promise and never delivers. Okay, so what John is saying is the exact opposite. Now, the temple... The tabernacle, the temple where Israel would meet God, God's people would meet God, it was a small, bad brochure, if you will, of this place we're seeing today. Like, where are you getting that? Somebody say that, please. Where are you getting that? Exodus 24, Exodus 25. 
when God is showing Moses how to build the tabernacle. In verse 39, he says, uh, or verse 40, and see that you make it after the pattern for them which is being shown you on this mountain. Oh, so the tabernacle and the temple is basically a bad brochure of the throne room, which is the realest thing that we ever see in Scripture. And surprise, Moses sees some of the same things that John does. 24, verse 10, And I saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. There's this clear bottom under the throne room, which John sees too. He calls it a sea of glass. Yeah, isn't that glorious? Okay, so understand that what you're seeing is it's going to feel like the temple. It's got things that are temple-esque, like lampstands, and there's altars in it. Uh, you're seeing the throne room of God, and it's communicated to us through temple imagery. Okay, so before we go any further, John has a language here that you need to understand. He's seeing something that is so glorious, he has a hard time putting it down in words. So what he does is he uses the language God has given him, and it's the language of the Old Testament prophets. He uses the language of Moses in Exodus 24 and 25. He uses the language of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, go read it. it, it not right now. It, it looks like this throne room. It has the same type of thing going on. Brightness all around, the appearance of a bow or a rainbow that was in the cloud of the day of rain. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God in my sight. I fell on my face and heard the voice of the one speaking. He's seeing the same thing. So John is like, oh, I've heard of this before. I've seen it. And in Daniel 7, the same thing is happening. And John understands it, that, oh, no, Jesus is the son of man. He is the exalted king. I'm in the throne room. So he's using the language of the prophets, not really in a way that's specifically disciplined. He's just got it in his head, and he's dumping it out, and it makes sense to him because this is the language God has given him. And he understands it as the temple, and he understands it as the prophets have written about it. So let me ask you this. If I told you to go outside, I had to say in the first service, I had to say this very carefully because they're kids, go outside and look at the sun for 20 minutes, and I want you to write down everything you see. I want you to start breaking out the different, um, you know, frequencies of light and the unseen and the seen. I want you to start making some notes on different radiations that's coming from it. It's nonsensical. You'd be like, ah, oh, this is exactly. One of the things you're meant to see is that the glory of God, being present with him, is so beyond description, you don't even have an imagination that can exceed it. You're never going to exceed what God puts in this book in imagination. You do not have words for it. You do not have an experience for it. It's glorious beyond description. It's very much like looking at the sun. Based in the temple, language of the Old Testament. And note this, in uh, was it Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, Daniel 7, Exodus 24, the people of God are always in crisis and they're always displaced. And here they are again in Revelation. The church is under pressure. So let's walk through some of this, this glorious presentation we see. What are we saying? Well, there's a throne occupied by God. Got that. 
throne is exalted. It's the seat of authority. Nothing happens under the throne that doesn't absolutely happen because of the throne. Well, God's not the author of evil. I know that. He has an answer for evil. It's Christ. He's going to judge it. But everything is going through the throne. And like the temple, there's cascading levels of holiness. And the further out you get from the throne, different things you see, and the holiness is a little bit more common, right? So you see that in the text, especially as we go through in the next couple of weeks. So there's cascading holiness, radiant glory. It's overwhelming. We see these two um, these stones, jasper and carnelian. Now, as far as we can know, jasper is probably something that's a little purplish or green, and carnelian is red-ish or brownish. They show up in different places. They show up on the breastplate of the priests in the Old Testament. They show up in likeness to the radiance of the bride of Christ in Revelation. They show up in the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem as it comes down. So it's, it's what it's meant to convey to you is resplendent glory. Think about God in being unapproachable light, and that light is mediated, or maybe not mediated, but refracted through these precious gemstones. They just split it apart and just blow your mind. And you can kind of see the color, and you can't really see what's behind the color. Ezekiel said it was like shining metal, and it's glorious, and it's beyond your ability to describe. It's overwhelming. So those are there. And then we have a couple things which are polar opposites. We have lightning and thunder. We have a rainbow. Now, lightning and thunder happens right off the bat in Exodus 19 when God pulls his people to the mountain, and there's thunder and there's lightning. And they're like, hey, Moses, you go deal with it. We're afraid, and rightly so. Lightning and fire, thunder is a picture of God's holiness unto judgment, if you stand against God, you don't stand in his presence. He does not give on that. And there's a rainbow. Rainbow, Genesis 9. God promises, I will never drain the filth of this world down the drain anymore. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to send a redeemer. So the rainbow to John would have been Genesis 9. God is patient, and he is merciful, and he is for us. And those two things are on the same throne. The unflinching holiness and justice of God and his kind, patient mercy in the rainbow. And if you're trusting in Jesus, what does that rainbow mean? What does it mean for John? Storm's over for you. Jesus took that. He took that for you. Storm's over for you. There's a lot in this throne. It's overwhelming. So in my previous life, um, I was struck by lightning three different times, believe it or not, um, in an airplane. And I can tell you the one I remember the most vivid is coming into Philadelphia. We were on descent, and we were going around a thunderstorm and everything was good. And then it sounded like somebody put a shotgun in the flight deck and, and like we froze. Great co-pilot. We just looked at each other. Like, you're still alive. I'm still alive. Like, you didn't shoot me. Okay. And he said, lightning. I said, yeah, lightning. We didn't even see the flash, but we knew it. And then the weather radar started to smoke and catch fire. 
And so like, turn it off, pull the circuit breaker. That's not good. We start losing different instruments. Let me tell you what, we landed safely. Let me, let me tell you, um, I, don't have, I don't have time for that. <laughs> we landed safely, right? It's not as glorious as this. You know what that lightning did for us? First of all, I had to drop my Sudoku. <laughs> um, but really, it woke us up. Nothing mattered anymore but what was right in front of our face. We calmed down. Life is very simple. It was very simple. Friends, you need to be confronted by the glory of God and his justice and his holiness and his mercy for you. And it simplifies life greatly. And you learn to look through his throne. You need to be shook up by this. It's, you are meant to be shook up by what you see. And know that there's going to come a day you're going to see it. See it in Christ. All right? See it in Christ. Okay. So we see this dangerous invitation from Jesus to John. We see this glorious, overwhelming picture of what it means to be in the presence of God in his throne room. And then we see some creatures around the throne. So before we get into that, I just want to do a little bit of um, Revelation pro tips here. Numbers mean something in Revelation. Very significant. One is very easy, seven. It's the number of perfection or completion. We've got that, yes. Many times it's applied to God himself. In this text, we see the seven lampstands or the seven spirits of God. So that's number of seven. Like last week, it means completion or fullness. This is, the, this is God the Holy Spirit in the throne room. Actually, kind of the last thing we see before creation. So it's seven is perfection and completion. Number four is the same thing, but in a different vantage point. When you see the number four in Revelation, it means universal wholeness or universal application. It applies to all of creation. Think north, east, west, south. Think of the whole compass. Four points. It goes all the way around. It applies universally to all of creation. And lastly, when you see the number 12, it means it's almost always speaking of mankind or humanity, and it, it, it really pulls in this unified diversity. God is putting things together that don't necessarily belong, and there's a great unified diversity that glorifies the Lord in it. So when we see in the text, knowing what we just talked about, that around God's throne there are 24 thrones, and seated on these thrones are 24 elders clothed in white with crowns on their head. Where do we go with that? Well, here's where we go with that. Can you think of the number 12 as it, re, as it, re, as it, re, uh, it represents God's people? There's 12 tribes of Israel, Old Testament. There's 12 apostles. They're around the throne. Literally? Probably not. These are probably angelic representatives. They're around the throne. Friend, you are represented right now before the throne. How do you know that? Well, again, apocalyptic literature, I can say it. These creatures, these elders, these leaders have white garments and golden crowns. Jesus specifically said in verse, or chapter 3, verse 4, only those who conquer get the white garments. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, those who conquer get the golden crowns. These are the redeemed people of God, one huge unified diversity. All the saints from the Old Testament represented 
all the saints from the New Testament represented, having conquered. What does that mean? That means you as God's people can experience and expect total, complete total victory. You are not going to be overcome. You're already represented there. And Jesus is in the throne room as the exalted victor. What is Revelation doing? What is Jesus up to? He's bringing the kingdom of God in full consummation. Full consummation. It's inaugurated at his resurrection. He's bringing it to full consummation, and he's bringing all of God's people, past and present, all of them, to full and final victory, and they will reign with him. Can you live in that story? My life doesn't feel it. Can you live in that story? But that's not how my life is working out. Would you ever look around you based on your circumstances and what you see at your job, in your neighborhoods, in your own life and family, would you ever make that conclusion? You never would. That's why we need revelation. That's why we need the apocalypse, the revealing, that God is moving everything to his full and final completion. So where do we go with this? This is just the beginning of revelation, but if we miss this, it's going to be so hard to understand the rest. Jesus is telling John, God is telling you today, you are to look at your life through his throne. He's exalted, he's king, he's in command. Look at life through his throne. But my life does not feel like anybody's in charge. Look at your life through his throne. He's bringing everything in history to full and final completion. And if you're in Christ Jesus, if you're trusting him, he's, your personal history as well is going to add up to where he wants you to go. So what, what are a few ways we can look at life through God's throne? One is very easy. Just look up. Take your eyes off your circumstances for a minute. Stop making conclusions based on what you see around you and your feelings and in your life and start making conclusions based on the fact that your Redeemer lives and he's on station in unchecked power, unchecked victory, and it's through this throne that your life has meaning and desires line up with God's glory, and even when they don't, he's moving you there. So first, look up, right? As 2 Corinthians tells us, uh, that you know, as we behold the glory of God, we are being transformed into his likeness. So do that. Secondly, you need to wake up. Don't, don't be struck by lightning. Let the word of God strike you. Let the spirit of God strike you now. Let this vision of God's glory strike you and wake you up. Like Ephesians says, awake, O sleeper in Christ, and let the light of Christ shine on you. Stop getting lost in the minutiae. It does matter, but wake up. Be shook by this. God is on his throne, and he's bringing you there. And lastly, and this is so key, don't give up. Man, how many of us wanted to give up this year? Me? I wanted out of this job. I'll just tell you that. About December, I just wanted to, I don't know what I wanted to do. Like everybody, we were so overwhelmed. Don't give up. God is moving 
your story to his end. Don't let go. This is, what, this is how Revelation starts. God puts our eyes on his throne, and that's how we endure. And we're there because of the blood of Christ. He's earned it. He's going to show it, and we're going to show it off. That's our call. Look at life through his throne. Look up, wake up, do not give up. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. You're good, you're beautiful, you're glorious. We have such a small taste and a kernel of what that could even, that experience of being in your throne room would be like. And as you look through that glass floor, Lord, as you see everything proceeds from you and let us trust you. And there's some hard things we're gonna have to trust you for today. And there's people in here and even watching some hard things that people are gonna have to trust you for. Let us look at our lives through your throne room and know that you're moving even our personal histories as we trust you to your glorious end. We lift this up and we pray in the name of Jesus, who has conquered, has conquered. Amen.